thanks to our 2022 listeners in more than 160 countries. Please help us reach more worldwide listeners next year by making a year-end tax-deductible gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir and our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thank you for supporting the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. First Amendment rights are especially important when they are under pressure, when we are tempted to compromise those rights because of a crisis or an emergency. That's precisely when we need to double down and say, no, whenever we give up these rights, historically, bad things happen. Bottom line is the world always does the world in a much more compelling fashion than the church does. People should study the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and how it saved its seminary in the early 70s in a conflict that's called Seminex, because it might be one of the real examples of saving an institution that was going in the other direction. It was Luther's letter to the Christians of Frankfurt. They weren't quite certain about their pastor. He said, look, just ask him, what's in your hand? What are you putting in my mouth? And if he can't say the body of Christ, run. Don't stay there. Leave. Nonagenarians in Northern Virginia love listening to issues, etc. while lounging in their lazy boys. Okay, Google Play Lutheran Talk Radio. Streaming Lutheran Talk Radio from TuneIn. Well, for most people and many Christians, Christmas is, well, it's like Thanksgiving. There's a big buildup, then there's the day, the feasting and the eating, and then it's over. And you move on to the next buildup, to the next holiday, that when it comes, it's over. And that's the way it is for many Christians who probably should know better that Christmas Eve and Christmas Day are the beginning of a season, and a season to reflect upon Christ's incarnation. Now, how do we do that? Could we actually go to God's Word and spend those 12 days of Christmas that don't come before but after the Christmas holiday, spend those 12 days of Christmas studying God's Word to better understand and to better appreciate the incarnate Christ? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Wednesday afternoon, December the 21st. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to spend some time talking about reading the Bible during the 12 days of Christmas. Pastor Hans Feeney joins us. We'll spend time with you, our listeners, via email and the Issues Etc. comment line, going through that email. And then Pastor Tom Baker will join us to teach two Sunday School lessons, Jesus healing Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5 and Jesus feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Pastor Hans Feeney is pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in St. Louis, He's creator of a series of comical videos called Lutheran Satire, and he's author of a column for The Federalist titled A 12-Day Guide to Feasting on the Bible. Hans, welcome back. Good to be back. Before we talk about how we read the Bible during the 12 days of Christmas, make the case for those 12 days. Yeah, so in Christendom, there's not necessarily a really crisp and clean and consistent celebration of the Christmas season between the East and then the Roman Catholic Church and then Western Christianity, at least that which abides by some kind of liturgical calendar. But there there has been a unified idea of the idea of Christmas being a season rather than just a, a one-off day. 
So everyone's probably familiar with the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. I'm not a an expert on the history of the song, and I don't know quite where the lords are leaping and the maids are milking come from. I can't really even remember any of the lyrics to that song after Five Golden Rings. That's the only part that I really enjoy singing. But nonetheless, the idea of The Twelve Days of Christmas is a historical relic of this 12-day feast that runs from Christmas Eve slash Christmas Day, which are really considered that same day because it's sort of borrowing from the Jewish tradition and the Jewish practice of seeing dusk or evening from the night before as the beginning of the new day. So that you have Christmas beginning with uh, the celebration on the 24th slash 25th and then going up until the day before Epiphany, which is January. So Epiphany is January 6th or January 5th, 24th to, to January 5th. That's your 12 days of Christmas. You begin with December 24th and 25th, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Two places. One, the creation and the fall account in Genesis. Why? Well, I think if we're going to celebrate the season of Christmas, uh, the best way to begin it is to ask, why is this happening? So the idea of God coming into the flesh is a monumentally enormous idea, but it does raise the question, well, why is God doing this? The answer is not simply that because God can, he's doing this simply because he wants to, but that there isn't, this is a necessity, that in order for mankind to be redeemed, in order for men to fulfill the law that God has commanded must be fulfilled, a man has to fulfill that law in our place. And that man arrives in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the son of God and also the son of Mary, the virgin-born son of Mary, who comes into this world to undo the work that the devil brought into this world with the fall into sin. So God creates the heavens and the earth and he creates mankind. He creates Adam and Eve in a state of perfection. And then they fall into sin and all of their offspring are then corrupted by sin. And the world that they live in is corrupted by sin. Man's heart becomes full of sin and death, sorrow and cruelty and hatred. And the world itself reflects that. The world itself becomes full of sin and sorrow and cruelty and hatred. And so a great way to, if we're going to sit down and and give ourselves the gift of reading the scriptures throughout the Christmas season. A great way to begin is to start with the creation account, with man's fall into sin, which raises this question, who is going to be the savior? So God promises the serpent, after Adam and Eve fall into sin, that the offspring of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head even as the serpent strikes his heel. It's a, the very first promise of the Messiah in the scriptures. And so in Genesis 3, we hear that first promise of the Messiah. And then in Luke 1, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary to announce to her that she is going to conceive and give birth to the Savior of the world, we meet that long prophesied Savior, the offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, who's going to be the Savior of his people. On day two of the Christmas season, you point us to Isaiah 7 and Luke 2. One of the things that's so great about studying the scriptures is that it's a bit like watching a beautiful flower unfold. And as the petals spread, as the flower blooms, you see more and more of the radiant beauty of this thing. That the And that radiant beauty was always there, but you couldn't quite see it as clearly as you could the moment before. And the great thing about the Old Testament in particular is that as it goes along, 
the story of salvation is blossoming and opening, and you're getting to see it more and more clearly. So I would certainly argue that in Genesis chapter 3, you actually do have in this very first prophecy of the Messiah, you do actually have a promise of the virgin birth because it's the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, which is not normally the way that the scripture speaks about parenting. Uh, it typically speaks of the seed of the man, that the man is the one through whom the line is traced. So the, the fact that there's no man mentioned indicates that this is the offspring of the woman who will have no earthly father. But we get this promise very clearly in Isaiah chapter 7, when God, through the prophet Isaiah, confronts the duplicitous King Ahaz, and he speaks to him of a promise and a sign of God's victory and of his enduring faithfulness. And he does so in a way that is condemnation for Ahaz, but is a word of great and profound gospel blessing for us. So Ahaz, who is pretending to be too humble to ask God for a sign, gets from God a sign that he doesn't understand and that he himself is not going to see fulfilled in his lifetime. And that's the promise of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son. And it's all tied in with these kind of geopolitical turmoil that Ahaz is enduring at the time. So here you have this promise that the son of, of this virgin, uh, the son who is God with us, who is Emmanuel, that's God with us, God in the flesh, he is going to come to bring peace to this earth. And that uh, promise of peace is precisely what we hear the angels and all the company of heaven proclaiming to the shepherds in the fields nearby as Jesus has now come into this world. Day three would direct us to Second Samuel 7 and the first chapter of Matthew's gospel. What would we find there? So there are a lot of different aspects to the incarnation, different aspects to the idea of God becoming man, coming into the flesh to be our brother. So one of those, of course, is that God comes into the flesh to be our brother, but the other, another aspect of it is that he comes into the flesh to be our king. So when Jesus arrives, he arrives fulfilling the promises that God has made to David. He is the offspring of David. He's the legal heir to David's throne. So back in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David basically floats this idea of building a temple, bu building a permanent house for God. Uh, so to take the tabernacle, which had been, which was the sort of temporary movable house of God, and to build an actual established house. That's a promise that ultimately Solomon, David's son, will bring to fruition. It's an idea that he brings to fruition. But in response to that offer to build a house for God, God promises David that a son from his body is going to rule from his throne and that his throne will be established forever. So that eternal throne was not obviously fulfilled in Solomon or any of Solomon's offspring, immediate offspring. But here now through the arrival of Christ, as we see in Matthew chapter one, where you have basically Joseph's angle of the Christmas story, where you have the angel proclaiming that Mary has conceived the Christ child to Joseph, you see the kind of legal aspect of the Christmas story here, where this son from David's body has now finally arrived, and the one who's going to save his people from their sins and have his throne established forever is now finally here on earth. What is in Isaiah chapters 8 and 9 and then Matthew's second chapter that's appropriate for day four? In Isaiah, in Isaiah 8 and 9, you, you're, this is kind of continuing with the theme of the royalty aspect of, of Christ's incarnation. 
that you have the promise that the Messiah, the earthly Messiah, or the, or the promise that Christ, the true Messiah, is going to do what all earthly kings have failed to do. So earthly kings are bound up in corruption. Uh, they take bribes. They deal unjustly. They steal people's land. They rob them of their fortunes. They go to war and they put the innocent to death. And yet in, in the arrival of Christ, you have the promise that here that this divine yet earthly king is going to usher in a kingdom that truly delivers on what all men hoped that their earthly kings would deliver. But he, he truly uh, brings that promise to fullness and in a way that is beyond even our greatest expectations. So this is where you, uh, Isaiah chapter 9 in particular is where you have these famous words, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When you compare that with Matthew 2, Matthew's account gives us uh, not only the arrival of the wise men who recognize from the star in the sky that this king of the Jews has been born, but it, this, it also contrasts, you see, in, in Herod's response to the arrival of the Christ child, his response is murder and bloodshed. He wants to put this child to death. This is yet another threat to his throne, another threat to his rule, and he's already put to death a bunch of his own family members trying to shore up his control. So you see highlighted in the wickedness and the evil of Herod, you see the, the glory and the mercy and the forgiveness that Jesus is going to bring into this world highlighted. And it harkens back to everything that's been promised by the prophet Isaiah. On December 29th, you would point us to two chapters in Exodus and the first chapter of John. Yeah, so Exodus 25 and 26, which talk about God establishing the, the tabernacle, which is the tent of his presence, that where he's going to dwell with his people, pour out his forgiveness upon them, receive their prayers, shelter them with his grace and his mercy. So the tabernacle is a, a very, very important thing in the life of the Israelites, especially in the wilderness. And then the tabernacle kind of gives way to the temple when the temple is built. Well, in John chapter one, the evangelist speaks about Jesus coming into the flesh. And most translations translate it as, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the Greek there is ultimately tabernacled among us. And so there's a very nice kind of hearkening back to that promise of the tabernacle, that this is God's presence among us, where he's come to us to dwell among us with his forgiveness and his mercy, that this is precisely what it is that Jesus is doing in his incarnation, that God is taking on human flesh. The eternal son of God is coming to dwell among us and to tabernacle among us. So it's not just merely that he's come to dwell and, and hang out with us, but that he, he's come to be in our presence in order to pour out his forgiveness upon us, just as was promised and prophesied in the tabernacle. We're talking about reading the Bible during the 12 days of Christmas. Pastor Hans Feeney is our guest, author of a column for The Federalist titled A 12-Day Guide to Feasting on the Bible. We'll stay in Exodus and John's Gospel when we get to the next day of Christmas. Thanks to our 2022 listeners in more than 160 countries. Please help us reach more worldwide listeners next year by making a year-end tax-deductible gift. 
For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir and our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thank you for supporting the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministries sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org life. Lutheranism in the Public Square. You're listening to Issues Etc. Rocking around the Christmas tree. Have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the most wonderful time. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle Tired of an endless loop of pop Christmas music? Coming December 24th, sacred music for the Christmas season. LutheranPublicRadio.org Serenity Stability Solemnity Lutheran Public Radio, sacred music for the Christmas season. Coming Christmas Eve at LutheranPublicRadio.org Etc. Book of the Month for December is an Archbook's Treasury Christmas collection from Concordia Publishing House. Appropriate for ages five through nine. Tells the Christmas story in many different ways. Find out more about it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1 800 325 3040. 1 800 325 3040. Ask for Archbook's Treasury Christmas collection. Pastor Hans Feeney is our guest. We're talking about reading the Bible during the 12 days of Christmas. So we stay in Exodus and John for day six. Where would you direct us? Exodus chapters three and four, and then John six through eight. So in three and four, this is Moses speaking to God through the burning bush. And then there's this bit in there where Moses essentially says, well, if you're going to send me, who do I say has sent me? And to which God responds, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. So here God is invoking his name. I am, he is. If you have a typical kind of ESV Bible of that nature, when you read through that in the Old Testament, you oftentimes see the Lord capitalized, the name of God written as the Lord. So L-O-R-D, all in uppercase letters. Uh, And that's where the divine name was written in Hebrew, I am. So this was a name that over the course of time, the uh, the Jews were so afraid of using blasphemously that they ceased to speak it. So here in, in Christ's day, during his earthly ministry in John chapter 6 through 8, there's a long kind of brewing argument that begins with Jesus' bread of life discourse after the feeding of the 5,000. And which ultimately culminates in him talking to a group of, of Jews who were initially kind of believing in him and then now have grown increasingly skeptical and hostile. Uh, Jesus has been promising to set them free. 
And they're ultimately saying, and they end up saying, uh, we're not slaves to anyone. He says, anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And they're going, well, hold on. Who, who do you think you are? Do you think you're greater than, than our father Abraham? And Jesus tells them how Abraham saw his day. And they say, well, you're not even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus responds to them, before Abraham was, I am. So he's invoking that divine name of God and in doing so is identifying himself as the true God. And so in all of this, what we see is what has Jesus come to be? Who is Jesus born to be? Jesus is is not merely a servant of God. He's not merely a prophet. He's not merely that someone someone that Jesus sends tasked with a specific purpose. He's he's not someone merely born of miraculous circumstances in order to accomplish great things like you might find uh, in Samuel or in Samson. But rather, Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. He's the God who was there at creation. He's the God speaking to Moses through the burning bush. He's the one who always has been and always will be. And that's the God who, who's coming into the flesh during this Christmas season to be our brother and to welcome us into his kingdom. On New Year's Eve, or this year, the seventh day of Christmas, you direct us to Exodus, where the Ten Commandments are given, and to several chapters in Romans. Yeah, this again goes back to kind of that question of, well, why is Jesus coming into the flesh? And again, it's not merely to perform a magic trick. It's not God showing off. But one of the reasons that Jesus comes into the flesh is because God has commanded that man must keep the Ten Commandments in order to inherit eternal life. And no one can keep the commandments. It's not possible for a sinful man to keep the commandments in the same way that it's not possible to wash your hands clean with dirt. So what what's happening here then in Romans 3 through 5 is that St. Paul is showing us how these commandments that God gives in Exodus 20, how they have been fulfilled by Christ and what role they play in our salvation. So that the commandments that we can't keep, uh, God doesn't whittle down the requirements of the law, but rather he sends Jesus Christ to fulfill that law for us. And then in Christ's death and resurrection, all of our failures, all of our sins, all of our transgressions are eternally destroyed through Christ's forgiveness. And then his righteousness, his completion of the Ten Commandments, his perfect keeping of the Ten Commandments, he credits to us, and that is received through faith. So in many ways here, what we're kind of focusing on is the effects or the ramifications of the incarnation. Jesus Christ came into the flesh. The Son of God came into the flesh to make us righteous, and here's how that happens. On the eighth day of Christmas, we have Genesis 17 and 18, very early account with Abraham, and then the first six chapters of Galatians. What should we look for there? Yeah, so uh, I really should have just put the book of Galatians there because that's uh, that's all of the book of Galatians there. But January 1st, liturgically speaking, is the celebration of the circumcision of our Lord. So I thought it would be good to focus on what role does circumcision play in understanding the Christmas story. So Genesis 17 through 18 takes us through God establishing the covenant of circumcision with Abraham, of that promise being given to Isaac, who's the son born to Abraham and to his wife, Sarah, rather than to the child that Abraham conceived with Hagar sort of in place of Sarah, which, which was Ishmael. So Isaac is the son of the promise. He's the son of miraculous birth. And in circumcision, the promise that's being made there is that Abraham and his offspring are being made distinct from all other peoples in the history of the world 
than all other peoples of that time, because from their line, the Messiah is going to come. So that God is, is marking the reproductive organs of the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's marking them as distinct, because these are the men who are going to bring forth the Messiah. And now ultimately, of course, the Messiah doesn't have an earthly father, but it's from their tribes, from their people that he arrives. And then in the book of Galatians, where St. Paul was dealing with a conflict over the question of whether or not Gentile converts to Christianity had to be circumcised, whether they essentially had to become Jews before they could be Christians, Paul explains for us quite clearly how it is that we should view the covenant of circumcision. That circumcision is not a law that man is required to follow and that by doing this, God is pleased with the holiness that you've offered to him and thus grants you eternal life. But that circumcision was a sign and a promise. It was a sign and a promise of the purified one who would come from the line of sinful men and taking on human flesh would die for their sins, wash away their filth and their iniquity and give them the right to live forever. The, the law of God is no longer a burden to us because we've been given salvation as a free gift through faith in Christ. Ninth day of Christmas, why do you go to 1 Samuel 1 and 2 and Matthew 5 through 7? Well, what, this is one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible is the story of Hannah. It's a deeply personal story. One, one of the things I love about it so much is if you actually read Hannah's song, which she proclaims and sings after this great and glorious proclamation that she's going to give birth uh, to a child despite her years of barrenness, is that it's very similar to the Magnificat, which Mary speaks after learning that she's conceived the Christ child. And the Magnificat is also quite similar to the theology that Jesus gives to us in the Beatitudes. This great glorious meditation on everything being turned upside down, the humble being lifted up high and the proud being taken low. And all that comes from Hannah, who is uh, who's married to a man who has two wives. And her husband loves her, but she doesn't have children. And the other wife has plenty of children, and she mocks Hannah and her barrenness and makes her life miserable in all of this. And so just a, a small personal complaint, a small personal problem that seems like it shouldn't have any effects beyond the borders of their own household ends up being the basis for the most famous teachings in all of the scriptures, in the Magnificat and in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Beatitudes. So there's, there's something that's just profoundly beautiful about all of this, that Hannah, in her misery and her sorrow, God comes to her and through this miraculous birth of a son, dries her lonely tears and gives her peace. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus showing us who it is that he was born to be. That's, he also born miraculously. He has come to be the comforter of the lowly. He's the one who invites you to call God your father because he came to be your brother. He's a savior, not in just a broad political sense and of tearing down empires and of setting big things right. But he's also the savior of individuals, of people who have their own unique sorrows that don't extend beyond the borders of their own household that no one else knows about. It's a deeply personal thing that I think is really quite beautiful. For the 10th day, you say just pick 25 psalms. Why? 
Yeah, because it's well, it's hard to, if you want to give people a number of psalms to read during the Christmas season. That's really hard. So I just figured, well, just open up the book of Psalms and read 25 of them. And you'll come to discover that the promises of Christ are just spilling over all over the place in the Psalms. And it's a, a great exercise in seeing that Jesus was born to be all of these things that the Psalms proclaim him to be. He was born to be our shepherd in the valley of darkness. He was born to be our rock, born to be our redeemer born to be the one who's, as we hear in Psalm 22, whose hands and feet are pierced for us. Uh, so it's just a great exercise in just opening your Bible and letting God's word proclaim to you this wonderful story of salvation, uh, this wonderful story of the Savior who is born, the Son of God who comes into this world, is born of woman in order to give us eternal life. And it's all over the place in the Psalms. Then on the 11th day, the first three chapters of the prophet Zephaniah. Yeah, so Zephaniah is a short book. It's only three chapters. It's one of one of what we call the minor prophets, and it's probably one of the more underread books of the Bible. But the last chapter of Zephaniah has this really beautiful meditation on the conversion of the nations, of all people coming to know the salvation of God and 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 the mercy that He's come to pour out upon the world. And when you consider what Christmas is and how all throughout the world, every year you have Christians in Africa, Christians in Asia, Christians in North and South America, Christians in Australia. You have Christians in, you know, no one, no one really sort of permanently lives in Antarctica, but you have Christians setting up little chapels in Antarctica to worship their Lord and to proclaim the majesty and the mystery of his birth in every, cor- in every corner of the planet. So it's a very fitting book to read as we celebrate Christ's birth and as we consider how that birth is celebrated throughout the world. And finally, what would you recommend for the 12th day of Christmas? Well, it's always good whenever we're finishing any liturgical season, I suppose, to look forward to the return of Christ. So Christ, in his first arrival, in his first advent, comes to us lowly and born in a manger to become our Savior, to become our King. And when he returns, he will be the one who is our savior and is our king and pours out all of his grace and mercy that we've already received, but we're then seeing in all of its fullness on that great and glorious last day. So Isaiah chapter 11 and 12 have this really beautiful meditation about the stump of Jesse. So this shoot of Jesse that's going to arise from this burned over tree. So the kings of Jesse's the father of David and the kingdom, uh, David's kingdom is torn apart through the centuries, through unbelief and sin, through the rising up of these various foreign empires who brutally oppress God's people and this kingdom that should be dead. A spring arises from it, a shoot arises from that burned over tree and becomes this great and glorious tree that brings salvation to the world. And and Isaiah talks about this wonderful restoration of creation that's going to happen with the arrival of the Messiah, how the wolf is going to dwell with the lamb, how all of these animals who are at enmity with each other, how predators and prey who have who have been at war with each other are then going to be at peace. And the beauty and the perfection of creation that God created, God didn't create the animals to devour each other, that all of that is going to be restored. Uh, that the child who puts his hand over the den of the adder is no longer going to be bitten, poisoned, and killed by the serpent. But because Jesus has conquered the devil, because he's crushed Satan, because he fulfilled the work that he was born to do, this was, is, is an image I was thinking about uh, the other day as we've been coming to the end of the Advent season. 
and the question of whether or not there will be animals in heaven. And there's some debate amongst this, uh, amongst Christians about this, but I think there will be. One of the things I love about that idea is that the serpents are no longer under kind of the slavery of that imagery of Genesis chapter 3 and of the fall into sin and of the devil using the form of a serpent uh, to lead mankind into salvation. So I love the idea that in the kingdom of heaven, you're going to have children walking up to the throne of God with serpents coiled around their arms, no longer at enmity with them, but mocking the devil with their joy and their praise as they proclaim the majesty of the Lamb of God, as they proclaim the wonders of the Son of God who took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, and came into this world to make all things new. Pastor Hans Feeney is pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in St. Louis. He's creator of a series of comical videos called Lutheran Satire, and he's author of a column for The Federalist titled A 12-Day Guide to Feasting on the Bible. You can read it and find out more about Lutheran Satire at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Hans, thank you very much. My pleasure. When we return, we're going to go through your email and you can contact us, talkback at issuesetc.org. We'll also go through the issues, etc. Listener comment line 618-223-8382. Then when we've been through email and the comment line, we'll be teaching a couple Sunday school lessons with Pastor Tom Baker. Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection is the perfect Christmas gift for children, grandchildren, and godchildren ages 5 through 9. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. You can also purchase Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December, Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection, 1-800-325-3040 or issuesetc.org. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. SimplyClassical.com. A mobile Lutheran Bible study. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. 
A disciple is one who follows the master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well lived. Truth, freedom, vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. CUChicago.edu.